Hello, welcome to Minding Your Mind, our podcast about your mind and about how your mind works and about mental health and mental illness with Professor Ian Hickey, psychiatrist and co-director of the Brain and Mind Centre at the University of Sydney. Today, we're discussing autism. What is it? How does it affect people? Can those with autism learn strategies to help them deal with the effects of it? Autism is a lifelong developmental condition characterised by difficulties in social interaction, in communication, uh, restricted and repetitive interests and behaviours, and sensory sensitivities. Been estimated one in 70 Australians are on the autism spectrum. That is around 350,000 people. It's four times more common in boys than girls. Ian, what, what is it? Uh, what is autism? So a developmental condition, that means you're born with it and can't, I assume, cure it. That's correct, James. So we we talk about something being developmental. We mean something as the brain develops, as a child grows, mm. it becomes obvious that there's a problem. The most obvious ones, of course, are intellectual disability. What we see is kids who obviously have lower IQ. They're not developing the normal brain strategies. Yeah. Now, that's overall. So it might be first obvious that kids don't speak or they're not responding in various ways. If it's Across the board, we tend to call that sort of pervasive. You know, it's a general effect. Something's happened to the child in development, either genetically or through things like uh, infection while they're in their mum's womb. Something's affected the brain development and then it's affected it for life. Yes. It continues. And what is that thing? We Which don't you... <laughs> know. But what has affected it? Well, so we come to autism specifically, then, then rather than saying – a kid just has a pervasive problem. It's affected all of their cognitive abilities, mm. all of their thinkings, all of their emotions. We tend to divide those things up then into a range of different ones. So the two most common ones are the autism spectrum and the attentional spectrum. So ADHD for another time, another place. But the autism one is most characterised by this deficit or this lack of development of the social brain. I mean, as yes. humans, you know, lots of... Mums and parents have had to watch, you know, what are the developmental milestones your kid has reached? You know, when did they speak? When did they walk? When did they do various things? You sort of plot that. Mm. Actually, what most parents are interested in most of the time is the social development of the kids. When did they smile? Yeah. When did they react? When did I, when I wasn't just feeding that thing, but the thing smiled back at me. They responded. They laughed. They responded. I cuddled them. They held on to me. The social cues that are built that are the basis of what we call the social brain. So mm. not just the thinking brain, the speaking brain, the walking brain, the social brain. Is it a gene that is passed down? Is that there have been various theories linking autism in children to to things that have gone into the body of the, the mother? Uh, any Do we know anything about that? So we need to back up. It isn't one thing. Right. So like just about everything we ever talk about, James, it's characterised almost by the degree of variation. Yes. Is, you know, so we make up these criteria. We say, well, if you've got this thing, a problem with social interaction, you've got a problem with communication, information going in and then expressing that out. And also typically a set of repetitive behaviours, a kid who does the same thing over and over and over again in a repetitive way, unresponsive to the environment. You go, Look, if you've got these sets of characteristics, then we say you've got the syndrome. But in terms of it comes to the cause of that, you've jumped immediately to the cause. The cause of that syndrome, once it's identified, mm. come to that, like how early can you tell? No, there is no simple one gene. There is no oh. simple one viral infection. There is no simple one cause. In fact, 
you know, there's all, almost every kid with autism is different from almost every other kid. So it's a it's a general category, but the particular combinations that mm. different kids have. I'm just wondering if if a mother is pregnant and goes to a, a, a doctor, is there any way of a doctor saying you're at a slightly higher risk of having a kid with autism or a slightly lower risk of having a, a kid with autism? No. No. Now, having said that, the extent to which – a wider spectrum of behaviours, the so-called autism spectrum, runs in families to some degree. Yes. Yes. So if you've already had a kid with autism or there's an autism spectrum in the family or there's some other particular thing, your family might be at general increased risk. Right. But there is no specific blood test, no specific right. gene, no specific ex- exposure. You know, you've had this sort of virus. I mean, if therefore- both your parents had autism, are you much so more that- likely? Yes, yeah, so the heritability bit. Mm. So this is really complicated. you think this would be simple to sort out, <laughs> but it's not. It's not. Because while autism is thought in the, the syndrome, generally speaking, has strong genetic tendencies, there's no common gene. Yeah. And in fact, probably a lot of it's accounted for by rare mutations. Something's happened okay. specifically, and it's rare, not common. So the common genetics allows things to pass from one gene generation to another doesn't apply here. Mm. And and when we talk about the autism spectrum, is that kind of just an indicator of how severe it is or, oh, or is it a range of quite different things? So, oh boy, this is where the controversy broke out. I was having this debate with a very senior colleague in New York just a while ago and he leant across the table to him and he goes, Ian, autism is autism, <laughs> kind of in a yes, no binary way. Because he's a bit annoyed that everybody, everybody's a bit socially unresponsive, every politician who's a bit annoying, every relative who isn't listening to you. You mean in the sense that depression is depression, even though it might manifest very differently between different people or very differently in the same person at different times? Yeah, or I love the depression analogy. We all get depressed. We all get sad. We all cry. Yeah. But we don't all get depressed. I would argue. Yeah, well, I so, agree. So but, the, but autism, it sounds like it's less like that and more of a switch. You either have, you're born with it or you're not. Right. So the purists, the traditionalists, like my friend in New York, mm. you've got it or you haven't. Yep. And you've had it since childhood. And everyone's known that. Mm. And it should not be used as a term to describe other people who are just less socially responsive. Yes. Or some characteristics that do run more strongly in families, that that kind of difference in social responsiveness is not autism the condition. Mm. The condition, the disorder, the thing that occupies so much of our discussion these days in childhood and things like our National Disability Insurance Scheme is more categorical. Yeah, It's been there since childhood. It has more than one characteristic. It isn't just about social responsiveness or not. It is about not understanding communication. It is about repetitive behaviours and it's got significant impairment. It's really hard to function. But presumably if it's a spectrum... There can be people right at the bottom end of it who, you know, may or may not be characterised as having autism depending on what day it is and what tests they do, just as there were people who very clearly do have it who are more severely impaired. Would that be right? Yeah. So like all things that have some continuous distribution in the population, like height, yeah. some people have abnormalities that make them very short or very tall, yeah. clearly are different. And they're not just different for how tall they are. They've got a set of other characteristics. So yeah, I'm going with the... Um, for the rest of this conversation, we're going with it's more discreet. There is a point. 
There's a grey area. There's a grey area. But some people have it more severely than others, and it depends how severe the communication difficulties are. So kids who are not able to express themselves verbally, kids who have very low, below average IQ are very different to the kids who've actually got an autism-type disorder, but they have relatively normal IQ and they are able to express themselves verbally. Mm. They're able to use verbal communication. They're much more likely to be able to fit in in schools, in other environments, and learn, and become the important bit here, and learn other strategies because they can interact with the world through language, yeah. through communication. So their capacity to learn what they need to learn to fit in is higher than those kids who've got major communication difficulties, very poor verbal expression, very poor capacity to understand, and generally, if you like, is associated with what you might call lower general intelligence, lower IQ. We'll, we'll, we'll talk more about that in a minute, but I just want to clear this up. Now that people, lay people, if you like, know a bit more about autism, a little knowledge is a dangerous thing, uh, people often say, oh, yeah, I think, you know, I work with this guy who's on the spectrum, I reckon. Um, they often use it to describe someone who they work with or know who might not be, you know, might be good at their job, but not very good at communicating or interacting with people. Is that fair? Should we do that or should we definitely not do that? Right. So let's go straight to the controversy. Mm. The kids who are growing up with these major developmental problems, I don't think there's much argument. There's a lot that we could discuss about what works in that area and this is and, and how early should it be diagnosed and what and we will. do. And we will. Yeah. But what's made this whole thing more popular and more interesting and more of discussion every day of the week is a recognition that in our social environment, there's a significant number of people who just react differently socially. And we never thought of that as a problem before. <laughs> you know, it's slightly odd. You know, the classic men in black, they worked in the mailroom. You know, they worked in isolatory jobs. They had particular preoccupations, cricket, train stations, yep. railways, all sorts of things. And we go, oh, well, that's just different. Or as the British would say, that's just eccentric. Mm. And people go, well, really? Is it? Or is it actually Autism. quite different? And we use the word, the descriptive word then, autistic. And in fact, the word autistic is used quite a lot in other neuropsychiatric disorders, including schizophrenia, et cetera, to say it's a characteristic of other brain-related problems. Right. This lack of social interactiveness, this misunderstanding the social situation in people who otherwise have normal IQ, normal intelligence, mm. and can express themselves in language. So they don't have those other characteristics. Interestingly, sometimes when stressed, those people do engage in repetitive behaviours. Right. You know? And you've seen this in the- That sounds like a mean lab experiment. Stressing people. Well, do you know people who flap? <laughs> flap. Yeah, they start making, making science here. But, you know, when they're stressed, they start to literally flap their hands or they engage in some repetitive behaviour along oh, with. Oh, yeah, lots right. of people do that. So there you go, that's interesting because that's one of the other characteristics of, if you like, autism, the syndrome. Mm. They start to engage in a repetitive, what we call stereotype behaviour when under pressure, okay. particularly under, when under social pressure. Right. So then people have gone, oh, that's interesting. They've got the social deficit. They've got the stress thing, mm. but they don't have the communication difficulty to the same degree, although they misunderstand. So this has led to the wider discussion then of autism spectrum disorder. Yes. Now, and I've got some other close friends who've worked in this area. This has been so controversial in psychiatry because this led to, in the whole American classification system, a broadening of the diagnostic criteria from autism, the narrow developmental disorder we were discussing earlier on, to this spectrum of stuff. And now, is this around, I think, about 10 years ago, Asperger's yes. used to be a separate syndrome, but now it's incorporated into autism. What what it, what was Asperger's and how does that fit in? So 
Asperger's is a term aimed up for a particular person we know we'll discuss because he had bad association with the Nazis and a whole lot of other stuff. Oh. But it was the spectrum. So it's been reclassified to call it the spectrum. And what bit was Asperger's on the spectrum? Exactly what we're describing. The social right. interaction, the repetitive behaviours, but with normal IQ and yes. normal expression. So the people you work with mm. in the lab, mm. in the post office, at the railways. Yeah. In the back of the operating theatres. People who are quiet, very good at doing things, specific, often very obsessional. But clearly, in a social world, struggling to fit into a social world. And when you say struggling to fit in, is it that or is it less need of a social world or is it both? Because you, you've said whenever we've talked about social connection, 90 to 95% of us needed and benefited us. Are these the other 5% who perhaps don't need it as, as much? Yes. And this has led to a whole lot of discussion about language, about neurodiversity. You know, we don't all have to be the same. So rather than saying this is a syndrome, it's a problem, it's a medical condition, just to say it's different, it's neurodiverse. Yes. And the 90%, you know, neurotypical, like we're the common variety. <laughs> but there are other varieties, which is to say it's not a medical condition, it's just different. Someone I know who has a, a child with autism says, you know, it's it, it was horrible watching him in the playground alone, but it was probably more horrible for me than for him. For him, it wasn't that bad. He was kind of happy alone. Does that make sense? Yes, and you've always argued, James. Mm. Some of us are happier alone than others. <laughs> yeah, well, not all the time. But... There's a group who's not necessarily fast. I, a most marvellous young woman I met once who came to see me when she was at university, mm. and she was distressed by the fact that she was being forced to fit into social groups. <laughs> You know, right. you know, assessment, we yes. make people be assessed in groups. She was perfectly fine on her own. Mm. And she came from a family, which is really interesting. Her mum was a famous mathematician. Her dad was a guitarist. She had a brother. She said, we're the most marvellous family Christmas. We'll just go about our business. <laughs> and the worst thing in the world is we all feel obliged to yes. ask somebody else in. Oh. And then we ask somebody, and those people are really uncomfortable. Yeah. Because we all just have lunch, and then we go off and do our own thing, and we're perfectly happy. Mm. It's ruined. <laughs> by having to try and fit in to the social norm of a large group, which is very hard to explain. Mm. And at university, it's really difficult because now we've all decided you've got to be part of a social group. You have to function as part of a social group. You have to be assessed as part of a social group. She's going, I'm hopeless at that. <laughs> but at, what she was also articulating, though, it's quite hard to form social relationships and fit in yes. if you're not that good at it. But you're not fussed by it. But other people are fussed by it. Like, why can't you fit in more? You know, yeah, well, the worst thing would be desperately wanting them and being not very good at social relationships. But if you don't desperately want them and you're not very good at it, well, I mean, I, I uh, aren't interested in car engines and that's fine. You know, I just don't participate in any car engine stuff. So if you're not interested, it's not that bad, I guess. And that's the problem. Stamp collecting, never done it for me. Yeah. Small reptiles, coin mm. collecting. Things that people get preoccupied with don't interest me, but who cares? But social interaction. So this young woman was consulting me because she was distressed about it. Mm. She wanted to have relationships. Yes. She wanted to be able to fit in more in the social world. But she was well aware of the fact that she often misinterpreted those things. And not only that, she was perfectly happy on her own. So this is the counter view. You know, the world should be more tolerant of diversity. The world should not mm. try and change people to make them all fit in with the dominant paradigm, the world should allow and respond more to the diversity that exists. So 
there's an analogy with sport here. If you're playing soccer or tennis or any game, there are a series of technical skills. And if you're playing soccer, you can learn, I'm good at dribbling the ball. I'm really slow. These are my strengths and weaknesses. I can segment them out. I'm good at heading, you know, blah, blah, blah. But with social interaction, just think about the last time you had a conversation with anyone. It was all happening very quickly. You took, they took, you took, they took. As it happens, you're reading each other. You're not even aware of doing it, but you're thinking, okay, he seems in a bit of a hurry. He seems interested in this. I'll keep talking about this, et cetera, et cetera. We're doing all this below the surface almost instinctively. Not instinctively. We're well, yeah, yeah, we're processing. No, no. And we've we're learned a computer. And we've learned it. We've now, James learned is it. making all these faces at me as he talks. <laughs> and then he laughs. And then his eyebrows go up. Yeah. And pupils change. And facial expression, in really importantly, are cues to this, as are other body language. And, and we learned a bit about this during COVID with masks. It was much harder to have a conversation with someone. Or easier to detach and have no conversation. Yeah. Oh, I didn't see that. <laughs> Wasn't aware of that. Yeah. So, so I guess what I'm getting at is – it, it it's quite I, I I can readily understand how someone's no good at soccer or tennis. I get that, but I don't. It's very hard if you are social to understand what skills people with autism might not have. Are you able to tell us? Yeah. So you've just highlighted something. I really want to highlight when you have skills, you're so unappreciative. Yes. <laughs> of what you've got, hmm. and that you've learnt through childhood. Now, this starts very early. In fact, I want to go to a slight diversion here right from the start. So go back to breastfeeding. Think of those great Madonna pictures mm. of the mum staring at the child, suckling on the breast. Oxytocin is released to squirt milk out to the baby. It's also released in the baby's brain and the mum's brain and is probably the key hormone that drives this attachment. And they're staring each other in the eye. Research I'm associated with has demonstrated the extent to which people with autism cannot focus on the central part of the face. Now, I'm going to draw this again. Okay. Take the outside of your eyes and your nose and draw a triangle, the central part of the face where most facial expression yep. takes place. When we're talking, whether you like it or not, your brain attends to that and monitors that in the other, mm. right from the moment of birth and to the main people you're attached to and understands the cues that go backwards and forwards between the two, which is essentially a bonding type idea. It's what ties you to so you understand even better. And, and tone of voice would come in too. Your hearing, I guess, maybe a little later. Yes, yes. Touch, I'm going to say, with a ranking here, the, this, there's the eye gaze. Because eye gaze comes to, in, in the future, when you're in social groups and understanding what's going on, you've got to see what those eyebrows are doing. You have to see what's going on around the eyes. Smiled. You've got to see what the face does. All in that key triangle around the face. Touch really matters a lot, the warmth of touch. And then sounds and others progressively with language become important. So this is, you know, with the rest of us that have these skills to various degrees, we just take them for granted. As much as we take for granted that we breathe, that we walk, <laughs> that we remain continent, we do all these things which the brain has learnt to do yeah. through development. This one's gone astray. This one's gone different. Well, astray in the sense if you get the hardcore syndrome or gone differently if you go with the kind of neurodiverse idea that there are mm. people who just do it differently. So can you learn? I love the soccer analogy. I was once in a game in the United States, like it is, where the, I was standing on the sideline, I did not want to join in, elderly man, was, was the world versus the United States. And these guys from Brazil and England, they said, Ian, I said, I can't play soccer. They said, look, I'm going to teach you defense. <laughs> Stand here, be an obstacle. Mm. Right? We can teach you enough skills yeah. that you can contribute. It was an interesting example of exactly that. You only have to go one yard this way, one yard yeah, that way. Yeah. 
and you're in. But if you can't do it, it's not that intrinsically obvious. You know, the ball goes around you anyway. <laughs> you don't instinctively know hmm. or haven't learnt the kind of natural flow of those things, you know, where it would be useful to move to. So you can teach to some degree. And so kids certainly with on the autism spectrum can learn, if you like, if one thing happens, what is it you need to do next? Right. Even Example. if you don't get it. Example? Like we're talking, if someone is talking to you, mm. it helps to look them in the face. And is that? It helps not to look over their shoulder, not to be looking at something else. It, is that difficult or uncomfortable if you have autism? Very. Because? It's not a natural thing to do. It's not what you would normally do. In fact, you might actually turn away. You don't really enjoy. I mean, you and I enjoy the social interaction. There's yeah. a positive feedback. We enjoy, yeah. as you said, the banter. The, the verbal stuff, the cognitive challenge. Imagine if just the whole thing of sitting here, like we're sitting here in this studio, made you incredibly uncomfortable. Mm. You'd be happy sitting here on your and own. And what would be making me uncomfortable? Like, I mean, I've, I feel uncomfortable a lot, so I know the feeling. In fact, you know, I, I think about the last time you were sitting next to someone who you didn't know well and there was just a long silence and no one was talking. That's uncomfortable, right? So... Yeah, is that how they might? So it comes to a number of things that make you uncomfortable. One's got to do with the sensory input. So one of the things in the autism mm. uh, set of disorders is kids who are overly sensitive. So to the tone of voice or the sound or the lighting. So there's a sensory part that is co- that is aversive, that's unpleasant. Right, too much is coming in. Too much or of the wrong type. It's, it's, it's an unpleasant thing. You want to get away from it. So it would be almost like three people talking to me at the same time. That that would be a similar, for me, sense of discomfort, overload, there's too much. Yeah. Let's, well, let's just say a buzzing sound or it's mm. too light yep. or it's just too loud. So your experience of it was, I just go, oh, it's just noise, and I would modulate that out or select it out. Particularly as kids, or kids with a sensory problems can't do that. Mm. So the easier way is not to be in that situation, is to avoid, as we all do, get out of the situation that's causing you distress. Now, these sets of problems also, when you're aware when you're aware that you don't fit in, when most of us are aware of most things we don't fit in, you know, you walk into the wrong party, you walk into the wrong, wrong what do you tend to do? Um, I, I if you have the option. feel really uncomfortable. You've walked into the wrong party. Oh, I leave. Yeah. Yeah. Just imagine, I went to a function the other night, there was five functions on in different rooms, you know, <laughs> the insurers were upstairs, the doctors were downstairs. You walked into the insurer's party, what would you do? Uh, we'll leave. Uh, yeah. Bye. Yeah. <laughs> I'm in the wrong place. I don't fit in. So feel very uncomfortable. I, I get it. And withdraw. Mm. Also, if you know, like this girl I was talking about earlier on, you know that you're just going to get it wrong. You just know you're not going to get it right. And then people and people are going to think you odd. Yep. So well, why, it's anxious why, and distressing. Why subject yourself to that? Why subject you? Perfectly happy on your own. Oh, perfectly happy in different situations, low stimuli environment, doing your own thing, being really good at what you do. Mm. This girl saying her mathematician mum was fabulous and turned out she worked uh, for a large bank or something, I can't remember exactly, and made some IT program, which she did in the middle of the night on her own. Mm. <laughs> it was fabulously successful. They said, could you come to work during the day? No way. <laughs> right. Just send, send, in the, send in the absolutely what you need. Perfectly happy in that world. But it's a hard world where 95% of us are walking around Love and social interaction, thriving on social interaction, functioning as social groups. Mm. So it is a problem of uh, being different and fitting into a world that's pretty stereotyped or, or a world that really functions 
on quite close social interactions. It sounds lonely, but if you had autism and were socially isolated in that sense, would you be lonely? Not necessarily. Mm. Not necessarily. Now, the girl I was describing, she's being forced into social situations and wants to have social relationships and kind of so the cognitive gap between perfectly happy on her own but not such a great life in our world to be on your own, to try and reconcile that. Others will just stay on their own. Why bother me? I'm fine. And that's the challenge, of course, in the workplace or in families or in others. We, we, particularly those of us who are very social, we want everyone to be social. We want everyone to be included. We want everyone to function. We want to make room for. Mm. So we find this in a lot of the work around social skills training for two different sets of kids we deal with or youth. There's the socially anxious, which you and I can identify with more. Mm. They're anxious, but but anxiety is causing them to have trouble fitting into a group. So we can treat the anxiety, then they can fit in. When we take the kids on the autism spectrum and say you should fit in, learn these social, they're not the same. In fact, if we put them all in together and say these are all kids who are having trouble with socialisation, you end up with these two quite different groups. One is anxious, got to teach them anxiety. The other, you actually have to teach them the skills. What's going on here? Mm. What are people expecting of you? What can you do in return if you want to fit in more, if you want to have social relationships? You're going to have to learn what others have just learned. It's like language. You know, I've, no one's ever taught me to speak English. I've grown up and learnt it without ever thinking about it. Yeah, right. This is like learning Chinese. What's the youngest people can participate in those learning sessions? So there are two schools of thought here, if you like. One is for early intervention with kids with autism or and on the autism spectrum, is to identify it as early as possible yeah, and then be working with kids from the earliest possible age. And this is where most of the behaviour therapies and interventions with autism go, not just trying to reduce repetitive behaviours or harmful behaviours or outbursts, but also trying to teach through simple behaviour, breaking things down into very simple steps mm. to fit in. Right throughout childhood. But but in an individual right. sense. Primary school? Yeah. Mm. Oh, pre, well, pre, right. pre, yeah, just trying to teach in an analytical way, breaking things down into each individual step, what you need to do next, and then showing, in a pre-verbal way, showing a kid what to do next and reinforcing the positive aspects of that behaviour and making sure the kid is not overwhelmed. Mm. And that can be pretty successful? It's very intensive. Yes. It's very expensive. It takes a huge amount of commitment by therapists and parents to do that. Every simple, every many simple behaviours need to be broken down into very, very simple steps mm. and then repeated many, many times yeah. in a training-like way. As kids get older, and certainly those kids with better verbal skills, better communication skills, and uh, normal IQ, if you like, then can learn. So it's as you know in primary school and then in uh, secondary school. The more you can teach those things, the more you can recognise the problem and the more you can teach that thing, then you can actually take the situation forward mm. to some degree without ever expecting the person to change <laughs> Yeah, and do that. Yeah. Um, one of the other uh, characteristics of, of autism is restricted and repetitive interests and behaviours. So do we, that sounds like something quite different. You know, not a related thing, or am I wrong? So it's getting stuck on something. So classically, mm. if we go back to the stamp collecting, train spotting, <laughs> coin collecting, preoccupation with stuff. There's getting stuck on one thing and being preoccupied with it. So, so but classically, you, but, but you say but we should all have something we're really interested interest? and passionate about, purposeful activity. Yeah, is it that 
exaggerating. 16 hours a day. Right. Really? Only thing you can talk about. Yeah, right. Can't ever get off it. Right. Can't really explain to other people why you're quite so preoccupied with it, but you are. And does that explain why some people with autism appear to have incredible abilities in very narrow fields, some often... Yes. I mean, is that right or is that just uh, yes. an urban myth? No, 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 no. It's not an urban myth because mm. if you've used a lot of your cognitive capacity focused on one thing, there's some interesting other sensory things. So this has been yes. seen in the drawing area and the painting area that people notice incredible. De- Most of us don't notice detail. Yeah. We make a general gestalt, oh, yeah, James looks like this. If I had to draw James' face, I'd scribble something. Mm. It may, may not bear any resemblance, you know. But Egg with a big I, nose and glasses. I certainly wouldn't have focused. They're very easy to draw. Exactly. Yeah. I certainly wouldn't have focused on the detail yeah. that made you uniquely James. Mm. So that capacity to sort of um, – now, this is a very interesting, this is a very interesting uh, informational thing. Most of us go for a, a general picture of something yep. and not the detail. And that's, we, so we form a general image of something. And overall, something that approximates James. <laughs> it's true. That's enough. Moving on. Recognize that face. Mm. No detail. If you just sort of exclude the fact that you're James, <laughs> and you go, that's a face. Yes. Now, what is the detail of that face? What is that third wrinkle to the left, under the left eye? Mm. And, you know, and on the right side, there's a slight asymmetry. It's going to the detail of something, almost missing the point of what the whole thing is. Yeah, right. And storing information-wise every literal little bit, mm. then that's very different to the rest of us, and it gives a capacity to reproduce that in a visual recognition way. It's something uh, less other other species do to some degree. I mean, you might not know this, but you know, uh, monkeys and apes and whatever have much better visual recognition than we do. Okay, because they literally see all the bits. <laughs> We're very, we are very poor with the, the detail, yeah. humans. We Cl- love the wide sweep of things. Isn't it called clumping or something? Chunking? Well, it, how information is broken down into bits, yeah. Mm. So we go for the big gestalt things, generally. Yeah. That's all we need to know. Yeah, okay. We don't store the detail. Whereas if you have autism, there might be more detail. You might be ignoring the big yeah. thing. Really barely recognise that thing as James. <laughs> and what about the sensory sensitivities? So as we were discussing earlier on, there's information in problems and information out problems. It's yeah. overreacting to. Again, we the rest of us moderate down. You said a voice is too loud or there's too many people in a room. Mm. The rest of us moderate very quickly those sensory inputs. We turn yeah. them down. Right. A lot of discussion here about which parts of the brain, the thalamus, which pathways allow us to do that in real time because otherwise we would be overwhelmed by all of the sensory bits going in. Mm. Things that are coming from our own, our own body in terms of sensations, the light in this room, the sound outside, the tone of my voice is at the right pitch. If that was irritating you, it was all coming at the same time and you couldn't select it out, you could be overwhelmed. So there's a sensory processing problem on the inside mm. and then expressing it out again, often through verbal communication. Now, very severe autism can m- m- mean a person is nonverbal, can't it? Yes. So in this, the communication side of this, the verbal capacity is really important, both to understand what is being said. So when you think when we talk about speaking language, you've got to understand the input side, what's actually being said, what it means, and then your capacity to express it. So when autism is associated with impairment of language, particularly verbal aspects of language, then of course the whole situation is much more difficult, mm. both in terms of being able to speak and express yourself, but also being able to understand really what people are saying to you. Not just recognise the language, but understand the meaning of it. 
And and I presume it's a minority of people with autism who are in that situation. So this is the severity kind of graph. Yeah. The more and more of these impairments that you have, then people stop talking about just autism as one aspect. Mm. They start to talk about pervasive developmental disorders. It's affecting all of these different brain functions. Yeah including your eventually, if you like, your general intelligence. So the brain is just not developed across a range of these higher, what we call higher human capacities. And as you get older into adulthood, that becomes a very significant, I mean, it's always a significant disability, but I guess parents then think, what happens What happens now? Well, the verbal communication one's a problem by the time you're two or three. Yeah. And of course, as autistic kids grow up and become autistic teenagers and autistic adults, physically they continue to develop. And many of the issues then surrounding autism, which families have dealt with when kids are young, as teenagers or adults become even more difficult. Yes. Physically large people lashing out, can't cope in various situations, causing challenges. And probably, I presume, have that normal teenage or young adult thing of wanting more autonomy, even though they're not kind of at the stage where they can live alone or, you know, even be left alone sometimes. Yeah, so many families who've done a remarkable job with small kids mm. suddenly have a teenage boy on their hands or a 16-year-old. And, of course, the social world at that point gets more complicated, not less complicated. Yeah. Other kids of that age are moving to independence, you know, developing more cognitive capacities, not less and are coming to understand a much more complicated social world and a much more unpredictable one outside the family. I mean, families often adapt and become quite predictable with autistic kids. They try and do things in a regular way. They try and provide consistency. The external world is not consistent. Mm -hmm. So issues, um, my colleague Adam Glastella and others where we work with about trying to make sure we can find work environments and social environments that can actually provide the opportunity for like autistic kids. Trying to find the right kind of jobs. Which trying to find the right kind of employers. Be, well, they yeah. may be in a whole range of areas, but then the employer or the organisation needs to understand the nature of that kid. Right, and needs to understand that they have to be dealt with in a, in a different way. The environment needs to be more predictable. Yeah. You may need to explain further. You may need to break down the task into mm. what exactly needs to be done. Expect less in meetings. You know, <laughs> like send me an email about it. Don't come and Write talk it to down. me about it. It'd be easier. Write it you. down, explain yeah. it, break it into steps. Be consistent. And, of course, that provides fabulous opportunity. This is really important work, I think, so that people are not more excluded. The point you were making at the start is the danger is that young young adults and and adults with autism become more excluded because the rest of the world just can't be bothered. Hence, again, if you go back to things like the National Disability Insurance Scheme and others, they're all designed to hopefully increase the chance that people can be assisted to fit in and participate, not just fit in, participate actively mm. in the wider world. But that requires some adaptation from the world. Yeah. Not just, oh, you're an autistic kid, we can't do it. Yeah, you know, well, no, I'm sorry, we don't, we don't employ autistic people. You have to fit in like everybody else. So there's a lot of work going on in a really positive way of trying to provide environments in preschool, in school, and then in, in Good. adult life. But it does require adaptation. It does require, and why I was somewhat reluctant about this episode, but very keen to do it, and you raised it, is, yeah. It's one of those areas we all need to know more about yes, and not simply expect that everyone's like us and mm. is reading the world like the rest of us or can fit in. Because what happens here is- Yeah, so why were you nervous? Well, not nervous, slightly reluctant <laughs> to do it. I had to push you a little bit. 
Well, it's not my specialty area. Yeah. I, having said that, you know I'm very fortunate to be involved in work led by Adam Gostella and colleagues about early intervention recognition, some very important work around this eye gaze we were talking about yeah. earlier on, very important work, and, and the more controversial area, could you treat it, could you change it? So the work I'm involved in is, okay, this is a developmental problem. If you recognise it very early, could you, through interventions, which have largely been behavioural up to this point, but the work I've been associated with has involved oxytocin, this, this bonding hormone, oh, this okay. social hormone, which you can squirt up people's nose. And if you did that, could you change some aspects of this baby? Would the brain respond? Now, the interesting thing on this eye gaze thing, this triangle around your face, is that if you squirt it up your nose, people look you in the eye more. Mm. And hence oxytocin known as the love drug or the one that, you know, gets you in a lot of trouble. It sounds like you don't want to be distributing this drug too widely. (laughs) There's a wide discussion in the scientific world whether this stuff disappears from the lab on a Friday night. (laughs) (laughs) Forget the ketamine, forget all that other psychedelics, knock off the oxytocin. Because it has a powerful effect. So the Mm. work Adam led uh, some years ago, very famous now, is if you do squirt it up the nose, you move eye gaze to this central thing. You know when people look at you with that look? Mm. You think that's warm. That's nice. Yeah. Right. Well, that's got a chemical basis. That's got a hormone oh, basis. Oh, yeah, we've talked about that. And humans uh, do it. See how what is love. What is love. A lot about, but I wanted to ask you about first signs for parents, first signs that their child might have autism. So this is one of those sad tales where mums have often recognised this mm. at an early age. Many doctors have turned around and said, no, can't, no, too early. No, you're wrong. See you again three, see you again with the five. So, so mums who are experienced, grandmothers who are experienced, it's really easy. I, I met a kid uh, just recently, just a few months old, one of the most responsive kids I've ever met. You know, any, any face, yeah. any kid, the kid smiled, the kid laughed, the kid responded at a very early age. So, so we're looking Clearly. For not that. Not that. So you're looking for the absence of that. Yep. And then when it's not that responsive- you go, well, now, is that normal or is that a bit abnormal? The kid's not locking on the face, first thing. Kid's yep. not locking the mum on the mum on the face. Kid's sort of looking around. Kid seems not to be responding to touch. Kid seems not to be responding. I, I can't really. Can you do this? You're a radio broadcaster. Mm-hmm. Can you do that warm, you know, Margaret Throsby no, ABC no, voice? No, Don't they train you at the ABC? No. <laughs> they didn't train me. <laughs> <laughs> but those who got that warm, considerate, I can't even do it. Tone, oh. tone. James A. Lachlan. Yes, yes. Yeah. Anyway, what, what about it? Well, these are things that we respond to. Oh, I see. Tone, yeah. You know, so you – So rem- if, if the kid isn't You know, the kid doesn't seem to respond, and particularly to what people – this is usually maternal, but the very few people who have been very close, grandmother, mm. father, you know, other – kid just doesn't seem to respond to the emotional cues, to the social cues, physical touch, eye gaze, yep. tone. Kids growing, kids – sort of feeding, kids developing, but doesn't seem to be responding. So in the early kind of months, in the first year, there's a lot of looking for that development, including a smile, you know, an expression that kids is happy with mm. or to be engaged with the social world. The kid just seems less responsive. Now, to the, to the degree that that is happening, parents, particularly mums and others, may become concerned. Yeah. Certainly, and there's a great reluctance, of course, to call anything very abnormal. No, but, but good to Google probably, you know, stages, what should a kid be doing after three months, six months, and just as a rough indicator, is your kid doing those things? And if not, maybe 
you know, it's a sign. Maybe it's not, but... So we'd monitor kids' physical development, milestones in exactly, yeah, exactly. that way. So I am of the group that says, now, look, we should be monitoring this stuff and we should be providing better information and education about what is a reasonable time mm. to expect that your kid smiles, that kid responds, you know, and in what way do they respond? Now, what's really obvious is if you've got several kids, some of us have got a lot, if you've got several and one is really different from their siblings, <laughs> it's pretty obvious. But if it's your first child ever, you're That's not hard. really sure. That's yeah. really hard. And in my world, this is one of the areas where mums have been blamed forever. Mm. They caused it by being cold. They so, did not cause it. So, so is your is you kind of take out message? Find out what the kid should be doing. Trust your instincts, and and at least if it feels like those developmental stages might not be happening in the expected way, the earlier you find out if your child has autism, the better. So yes. find, try and find out. Yes. So the whole bottom line of the work I'm associated with is the earlier the, earlier the recognition, the earlier intervention, the more you can start down the behavioral yep. track or some of the other experimental tracks to see the extent to which it's modifiable right. and you can follow it up. Now, final question. If you work with someone who you think uh, you've described as, oh, I think he might be on the spectrum, what can you do and you to make that day-to-day interaction more comfortable for them? How can you how can you react to act to them toward them? Well, I think this is where the awareness of this sort of diversity is important. Yeah, it's rather than saying, "Oh, look, they're asocial, they're yeah. difficult, they're, they're obsessional, they're mm. rigid." And go, well, hang on a second. They've often got other characteristics that are really good and are worthwhile and are an important contribution. They see things differently, they perceive the world differently, and that's a value. So the inclusiveness thing here, and but, rather but it sounds of, like. You know, going out of your way to try and include them more probably isn't the right way to go. Just have have short conversations with them, or what well, not having not having unrealistic expectations. Yeah. I, mean, I mean, the other side of the coin is those people got high high social IQ, if you want, or on the other end, we expect them to understand. <laughs> mm. You're not unreasonably down at a different end. No, we don't have the same expectations, and we may need to be very clear and very direct and explain much better. Yeah. Not assume that an eyebrow will indicate what you mean yeah. or a slight change in tone and voice will be understood. Yeah. So often I think in the communication within workplaces, we assume we've made some communication clear and it's been understood by the other based on the way we normally – but that's not the case here. Going to need to be clearer, going to need to explain, going to need to set out and set out the expectations that arise. Sorry, one final question. Will they get my jokes? I.e., is it harder to experience humour if you have autism? Your humour, you bet. <laughs> well, a lot of humour does depend on understanding the social. It does, yeah. It, 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 it takes for granted that we get what is funny in social worlds, Which, social cues. If you'd never got it in the first place, it's a, it's a joke in another language. Yeah, right, right. Okay. Questions, comments, suggest, please suggest further topics for us. And thanks to all those who have the email mindingyourmind2, mindingyourmindnumeral2 at gmail.com. The Mining Your Mind is supported by the generous philanthropic donations from families who support ongoing research into youth mental health. Thank you. Further help's available from Headspace, Beyond Blue, Head to Health and Lifeline. Google them or you can call Lifeline on 13114.